Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. In this program, we're bringing you part two of our special Indo-Pacific Futures podcast series, where we'll be focusing on critical technology. Here's Chris Farnham. Technology has been part of human life since shale was shaped to cut animal hide. Things have come a long way since stone was the leading edge of innovation. Today we consume the products of innovation in blissful ignorance. Few of us are aware of the lifetimes of research and discovery that have gone into the technology that provides us with, say, weather forecasts we pop up on our smartphones before we hail an Uber to catch a movie, or even a flight. But in recent years, things have changed. Some technologies have become critical. News reports discuss embargoes on some products, the onshoring of production, or even restrictions on who can work in which laboratories. What are these technologies, and what makes them critical? In this second episode of our special series, looking at the future of the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape, We're considering the technologies that have become critical to national security and how they're likely to shape the region over the coming decades. To do this, we spoke to a number of scientists, researchers, strategic thinkers and analysts to find out what technologies they were working on and the ones that they think could plausibly influence the future strategic landscape. But first, what is critical technology? We spoke to Jen Jacket from the ANU National Security College to find out. So what makes a technology critical relates to the impact that it might have on a country's national interest. So that might be in relation to the country's national security or economic prosperity or social well-being. So it might be that that particular technology helps support the operation of a critical infrastructure asset, for example, or it might underpin something to do with the banking and financial sector, or it might be a key input into an advanced military capability. So it really depends on the particular application of the technology and the particular context. Not all critical technologies sort of broadly are inherently critical. It might just be how and in what context they're used. So why have some technologies turned critical and why are we hearing so much about them now? The term's gotten a lot of attention in the last few years, particularly since some of the public discussions around 5G telecommunications and the impact that that might have across the economy and the range of other technologies and services that that will enable. But for a very long time, 
nation states and companies and individuals have thought about the role that technology might play uh, and the functions that it can provide, and particularly for nation states, how technology can be used to amplify their national power. So whether that's to support their economic growth or whether it's to factor into their military modernization. So this idea of critical technology uh, has evolved over time. And I guess countries have always thought about what are those technologies that they need uh, to support their own national prosperity, but also what are the technologies that they might need to project power in a sort of international context. But I think in the last three or four years, like I said, there's a much more explicit and concerted effort by countries to put strategies and policies around the idea of what a critical technology is, how they can ensure their access to a secure and diverse supply of critical technologies, and who are the countries that they actually want to be partnering with on those issues going forward. And how do we determine which technologies are critical and which ones aren't? It is a very difficult process to actually work out what's critical, and that's because there's such a wide range of applications. So what might be critical for a government might be different to what a business considers critical for its operations. But once you have a framework in place that helps you prioritise which technologies are critical, the types of questions or policy considerations you might have is, do you have access to that technology currently? Where is that technology produced? Is it something that you can get? Uh, does the country that or the company that you might access it from, are they in a country that you have a good relationship with or is that trading exchange subject to disruption? Is that dependency actually a vulnerability and something that could be used against you? And so that might lead to another question around, is the technology something you actually need to manufacture yourself in what might be termed a sovereign capability, keeping in mind that's very expensive often to do that. And sometimes that can lead to a form of protectionism or what's being called techno-nationalism where countries try and do all of these things themselves, but that actually impacts the operation of the free market and even trading with your partners. So now that we understand what critical technologies are and what makes them critical, let's hear from some super smart minds on which technologies they believe will influence the shape of the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape over coming decades. Synthetic biology is a field of science involving the redesign of organisms by engineering them to have new abilities. It's essentially utilising elements from the natural world in new forms and applications to solve problems in medicine, agriculture, manufacturing and similar fields. To understand how this technology might influence regional security, we spoke to Claudia Vickers from Australia's Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organisation, commonly referred to as the CSIRO, or just CSIRO. One of the most promising applications is advanced or precision biomanufacturing, and that is essentially converting biomass or even carbon into value-added products, so chemicals and materials, and they might be anything from high-value products like pharmaceuticals to industrial chemicals, agricultural chemicals, or even fuels or biofuels. And that technology is going to be absolutely revolutionary over the next decade to two decades. And it essentially works by, one example, is recoding yeasts to use a, a, what we call a biomass feedstock. So it might be sucrose from sugarcane, 
to convert that through to their product. And you take those engineered yeasts, you pop them into a fermenter, very much like brewing beer, and you get to brew up the product at the end. And then you purify that away and it might be ready to go straight out of the, the fermentation vat and the purification process, or you might need to polymerize it to make a synthetic fiber and weave that into clothing, or you might need to modify it in some other way to get to its final end application or end functionality. And this is a technology that is so diverse and so broad that it can feed into many, many, many different industries. So you can also make alternative proteins, um, meat-free meat proteins, dairy-free dairy proteins. What kind of time frame are we talking about here and how should we expect this technology to impact existing trends? So I think this technology is going to be felt much more quickly than a 15 to 20 year time frame. I think we're talking you know, five, five years easily and it could be extremely disruptive. It could have major impacts on it many different industry processes and industries themselves. Food and feed alternatives could have major impacts on our beef and dairy industries and on our feed industries. So there are a whole lot of positives, I think, that can come out of dealing of this technology, which will be happening over the the shorter term rather than the longer term. What does that mean for regional security? In terms of security, this is a really unique time where because of this pandemic, people and governments are recognising that biology is really a force to be reckoned for. It can be both a danger to us, but it can also provide solutions. So synthetic biology as a technology has delivered us a novel vaccine technology that's extremely effective. And there's a lot of political will that's built up as a result of that. The question is, how and where will that political will be channeled to exploit, collaborate and operate in this brave new world. Next, we looked off the planet for technologies that will influence the regional landscape and found that change is coming not just through new technologies, but also new ways in how technology is being used. We spoke to Amy Parker from CSIRO to understand how using space to get greater knowledge of the planet will influence the regional security environment. But first, to help us understand that, we asked what current Earth observation technologies are and how they are being used today. Satellite Earth observation essentially involves satellites, of course, that take images of Earth using different types of sensors. And that provides um, a synoptic view of our land, water, atmosphere, human infrastructure. Um, And the observations are very regular, repeatable, and they span multiple years. So we have a multi-annual time series. And that is an extremely powerful and cost-effective solution for monitoring large, remote and inaccessible areas. But actually, the barrier to entry for using EO data can be really quite high. And in regions like the Indo-Pacific, it's to some degree under-delivering on its potential to benefit human life. So what I want to kind of bring to the table today are emerging technologies that are highly likely to have a significant impact on the uptake and the impact itself of satellite EO data in the Indo-Pacific. So the first of those is an approach to making Earth observation data more user-friendly, and that's via a technology that we call the Open Data Cube. And then secondly, a specific type of Earth observation that comes from radar satellites. So most of the Earth observation satellites are what we call optical. They rely on the sun to illuminate the Earth, and then they basically 
record the reflected solar radiation from the Earth's surface. But the issue in the Indo-Pacific is that it's heavily impacted by clouds and that blocks that reflected sunlight. So radar satellites are particularly useful because they can penetrate this cloud. They emit and receive microwaves rather than relying upon the sun. The only issue is that it actually requires an an extra level of pre-processing and expert interpretation to make it useful. And so the barrier to entry is arguably higher than for other Earth observation data sets. So that's really where that second emerging technology starts to come into play, the open data cube. This is a technology where Australia has played a leading role in providing operational, standardised, pre-processed Earth observation data. It's what we call analysis-ready data. It's ready for analysis. And that is structured in a data cube. And this enables users to access information about a single location over time from many different satellite sensors. And there is really an an alliance that's formed called the Open Data Cube. Um, And that Open Data Cube helps to unlock access to Earth observation data, essentially. And it's going to be particularly valuable in supporting the use of more complex um, data types like that satellite radar data. So what is one of the areas where the proliferation of information and terrestrial awareness could plausibly influence regional security over coming decades? I think hope or expect to see EO contributing to improving sort of resilience to climate change and other challenges in the region. But of course, to reach that relies upon these new emerging technologies to firstly provide a useful data set, um, you know, potentially relying upon radar satellites. And secondly, the accessible tools and digital infrastructure that's really required um, to build capacity to, to use the EO data in the first place. Okay, so let's take that from plausible to practical uses and their influence on regional security. EO has a huge part to play in underpinning stability, really, by monitoring and managing natural resources, so food, water, land, that have been identified as current and escalating sources of tension across the Indo-Pacific region. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the next set of technologies, we're going to dig further into the issue of sensing. First, we're going to narrow the scope dramatically to the sensors themselves to understand how technological leaps can protect vulnerabilities and alter modes of operations. Then, we're going to widen the scope to include space again to understand how messaging between sensors can alter the regional strategic landscape in the purest sense. 
We spoke to Sue Kay from Robotics Australia about cyber-physical systems and how quantum technologies stand to change the way we do things. But first, for the uninitiated, what are cyber-physical systems and what are some of the current trends in this field of technology? Cyber-physical systems are really where the digital and the physical meet. It's not just robots. It's about the sensors on board robots. It's about the Internet of Things. It's about cybernetics. It's about computer vision applied, you know, jointly with robots, but sometimes separately. So it's all of those different systems combined. And these are systems that are very important for the security of our region. In particular, when you think of a lot of our critical infrastructure, we rely particularly on sensing systems to control a lot of operations. And we leave these things in the hands of machines. At the moment, we tend to protect these things by making sure they're on closed networks so that, you know, there's a lot of development of edge computing and a lot of developments to make sure that we can process things in real time on the edge on device so that it's Uh, less easy for those systems to be compromised because in many cases they are in charge of critical infrastructure that's important to society. Now, one of the things that I find uh, fascinating, though, are, you know, some of the things that are holding those sensing systems back. So we've developed a lot of ways now that, yes, sensors can be um, uh, and and the data from sensors are are processed right on the device. We've also been getting to the point where, thanks to the application of artificial intelligence and improved algorithms, we can actually improve our communications. So rather than having to have a whole set of nodes set up so that these sensors can communicate communicate with each other and and with their home base. They can just directly communicate with satellites. And so there's a lot of improvements being made, but we still become unstuck with some fairly simple things such as power. And until we see significant improvements in battery technology, that's always going to be a constraint on many of these systems because it's then going to require either some pretty clever thinking about how you might be able to use kinetic energy or or other environmental energy sources to keep these sensors going. But in the case of something like a robot that actually requires probably a bit more power than you'll often be able to generate out in the field, then we have to think about, you know, how you can power those systems and how you can keep them powered so that they don't end up disappointing you in the middle of some action that you really require them to take. So what are some of the changes on the horizon that could plausibly shift the way these systems operate and how they're employed? I was really fascinated to find out about some of the work that's currently being done around the development of quantum sensors. And this has the potential to replace things like our traditional LIDAR systems, where we use light detection and ranging to help things like robots to be able to navigate in their environment and to be able to make decisions. And LiDAR is a technology that has been around for quite a long time and is something that is used by most autonomous systems. However, you know, it does have some limitations, particularly if you're thinking of using autonomous systems in a military context, then, you know, some of those failings are that, you know, the LiDAR has to be able to see the environment around it. It usually, it requires power and that, you know, in general, unless you're able to develop a static LiDAR, it has to be able to rotate. And these things seem pretty easy to compromise if you're out in a hostile environment. It'd be the first thing that a hostile combatant would be looking to disable. 
And with quantum sensors, you do away with a lot of the issues of our current traditional sensors. They're not going to require a lot of power because they're so small. They're also going to be much harder to detect and to disable. And so I really think that there's a huge potential for these things to really revolutionise navigation and communication in unmanned and autonomous vehicles. And I think that's really exciting. These quantum sensors are built from nano-engineered mechanical devices that are fabricated on a silicon chip with atomic gases cooled until they behave as matter waves. Wow, that's some pretty serious science there. But what does that mean for the operation of sensors and how we use them? What it means is that you can get things that operate exactly like a LiDAR, but are tiny and require very small amounts of power. And there are other quantum sensors that they're looking at developing at the moment as well, quantum accelerometers, gyroscopes, sonar and magnetometers. So I think the potential to de- of the development of these sensors is, is really exciting and is going to have a big impact over the next 20 years. So let's take a look at how shifts in quantum sensing and cyber-physical systems might specifically alter the strategic environment in the Indo-Pacific. To get this picture, we spoke to Atsushi Tsunami from the Susakawa Peace Foundation. If I were to pick one particular area of uh, science and technology that would uh, make a major impact in the context of Indo-Pacific, that would be on the quantum information science, which brings together uh, areas like uh, crypto technology that would secure the infra computer network system that we have to the area of quantum sensing, which would uh, provide us more a new and assured navigation system and positioning, uh, as well as, as timing capabilities under the free of GPS environment, which would make it a tremendous impact on things that are particularly in the ocean and, and the covering Indo-Pacific area. As we all know, the ocean covers more than 70% of the Earth's surface, but there are so much things that we don't know about the ocean. Not only the surface of the ocean that we cannot be able to see entire surface of the ocean, but also underneath of the ocean. The technology, the breakthrough that I mentioned, the one particular area of quantum, uh, especially sensing technology, that would enable us to to have uh, our capability to see and observe the uh, the surface of the ocean as well as the underneath of the ocean. And how would 2020 vision across the full surface and subsurface of the ocean influence the Indo-Pacific strategic environment? Once we start to get some of the information out of this particular unknown area, that would really impact on the legal aspects of and how we're going to govern this common area of the Indo-Pacific Ocean and also the uh, politics around it. If you think about terrestrial area, right, it's, we talk about GPS, we talk about the Google map, you know, everybody uses all this information in the daily lives. But if you think about the ocean, uh, we just even don't have a map that covers entire seabed. We just don't know what's underneath. We just don't have a map uh, of this uh, seabed. Now, the technology that breaks through precisely the quantum sensing would enable us to utilize and develop a kinds of technologies like the unmanned underwater vehicle, which is an automated uh, 
sort of a submarines that goes around, collect the data, all the uh, information underneath of the ocean. And then we can connect with the satellite information to see what's going on on the surface of the ocean. So when we have this, all this digitalization and data driven uh, system that connects the space and the ocean, then we'll have a totally new environment. Looking at the last three technologies, Earth observation, cyber-physical systems and quantum sensing, we can see that a lot of technological disruption in the strategic realm is often based around information and awareness and what humans do with that knowledge. But is informationalization a straight line to increased security and regional stability? Here's Michael O'Hanlon from Brookings to tell us how technology is also creating new pathways to instability. Certainly, the way in which we process signals, the way in which we take in data from closed-circuit television, process spatial imagery, facial imagery, the way in which we uh, are able to get data on the battlefield and locate targets or otherwise inform our operations is staggering. And you combine that with the precision strike revolution that we really saw come of age probably 30 years ago with Operation Desert Storm. And those two ongoing dramatic changes in warfare mean that large targets on the battlefield are increasingly difficult to defend because a lot of things can see them and shoot at them. And so I would offer that that is a ongoing area of major change. But one additional point is that I believe that our adoption of digital technology is, of course, a two-edged sword because it has made military command and control probably more vulnerable to enemy attack than ever. And so the same capabilities that make us more lethal if we are able to shoot first or fight a less sophisticated enemy or otherwise be assured of our own information, integrity, and command connectivity, these same capabilities have led us to build a whole military system that depends on the network functioning correctly. And meanwhile, we still use pretty mediocre commercial software in a lot of these military systems, and we all know the vulnerabilities of these kinds of software to attack. But with a military operation, when you need to be on your toes, ready to go, responsive on day one in the face of very fast-moving activity, to be brought down for a period of hours, days, or weeks could mean that you lose the war, or at least that the enemy has accomplished its goals in some other faraway theater before we can respond. And from the perspective of Indo-Pacific security, what do these vulnerabilities mean? As recently as 2017, a group called the Defense Science Board at the Pentagon evaluated America's dependence on cyber systems and judged that there was no particular part of the U.S. defense establishment, no set of weapons, no set of units for which they could vouch in terms of cyber resilience. And that included nuclear weapons. So we already know that we've adopted these vulnerabilities. To speak to your question about the Indo-Pacific, China does something that none of us want, but it's not, let's say, an invasion of Australia or Japan. It's rather a more limited aggression, but still an important one. And that's why I come back to Taiwan. It's the, it's the most important example I can think of where China has huge interest, where we have an uncertain commitment to Taiwan's security. And therefore, where China may think that if they can get away with something fast, that the United States would rather just sort of accept a FedEx home plea 
rather than mount a huge military operation once our computers are back up and running to undo the Chinese seizure of Taiwan. So if China gets to the point where it's forced Taiwan's surrender, the game is probably over. So if China can buy a couple of months for this kind of an operation, then uh, it changes everything. As we heard at the start of this episode, technology can be an enabler of state power, whether that be through providing economic advantage or as a way of projecting power. And that means that when we think about critical technologies, we can't think about the technology in isolation. We must also consider political trends and how they feed back into international collaboration among scientists and researchers, the protection of intellectual property, and even competition over access to raw materials. Technology is certainly a key feature of competition, and we've seen that playing out between the US and China in particular. So both countries have identified their innovation and technological competitiveness as a strategic national priority in different ways. So in the case of China, Xi Jinping's made quite clear that by the middle of this century, he would like China to be a high-tech power. And there are certain areas in particular, like artificial intelligence and semiconductors, where they have shorter term goals in the next sort of 10, 15 years to actually become world leading and to be able to support their own domestic production and supply, especially of semiconductors, which they currently rely on other countries for. But this is part of a much longer term approach in China to use science and innovation to support their broader national rejuvenation and economic prosperity. So it's not something that's recent. It's actually been going on for many decades. And the government has had a range of industry policy and assistance measures uh, to support the growth of the innovation ecosystem in China. Now, there's still been a lot of challenges to them realising some of their objectives and keeping in mind that to move to a high-tech economy is quite complex. It requires a lot of talent a lot of know-how, access to the relevant inputs from other countries. And of course, in the context of US-China relations, especially in the previous Trump administration, we did see concerted efforts by the Trump administration to restrict access of Chinese companies to relevant inputs from the US economy uh, to potentially slow down their rate of growth and the size and capability of some of those Chinese tech companies globally like Huawei. That was Jen Jacket explaining how great power competition is shaping the nexus of technological advancement and national security. And that gives us an idea of how Chinese leaders are approaching critical technology and some of the decisions made during the Trump era, but how are things shaping up under the Biden administration? Since Biden's come in, in many ways, he has continued so far a lot of the broader tech objectives that Trump had, but he's putting a much more positive vision, I think, on the tech agenda for the US. So Biden really sees technology and innovation as the bedrock of American power this century and technology as a force multiplier for all other aspects of national power, um, including jobs and the economy uh, and security more broadly. So even in the last four months, we've seen a lot of new measures introduced to support U.S. tech competitiveness. One of the most noteworthy ones was 
a major package of legislation called the Strategic Competition and Innovation Act, which just passed the US Senate. And that includes uh, billions of dollars in proposed funding to increase research and development capacity in the United States to bolster semiconductor supply uh, and to reform a lot of the science sort of architecture in the US to support the US's tech competitiveness long term. That was a, a significant step as part of the US's broader plan to compete with China on science and technology this century. So certainly at the level of great powers, technology is a strategic priority. And I think that's also the case for many other powers in the Indo-Pacific, but also globally. We've seen in major forums, including the G7, but also the Quad leaders level meeting earlier this year between the US, Japan, Australia and India, critical and emerging technology was identified as a shared priority there to foster further practical cooperation on and then in some of the big summits between the US and Japan and the US and South Korea, again, there was a sort of stronger commitment to work together on key technology areas like next generation communications technologies. So it's certainly a strategic priority a- across the board, but I think the US and China are really at the heart of driving some of that competition at a global level. Lastly, To put this discussion of technology as an element of great power competition into perspective, we spoke to Elsa Kania from the Centre for a New American Security and she reminds us that becoming focused on the competition itself will come with its own costs. The recognition of China as a rival and concern with China's rise as a powerful uh, contender in science and technology in its own right has provoked a reflection and calls to action that can produce uh, produce productive outcomes. But I think there also is a risk of destructive tendencies when science and technology start to be seen as realms that are competitive or zero-sum in character despite the shared threats and mutuality of of the systemic problems that we face, in which uh, solutions coming out of the science and technology we have will be really critical going forward. So I think certainly there is a focus at the moment on strategic competition as a priority, sometimes as an end in and of itself, as if it were, which is not necessarily the most uh, strategic or sustainable approach, I would argue, because I think ultimately the focus on competition uh, cannot be an end. The end has to be what do we want these technologies to achieve? What problems should they solve? What what do we want our societies to become? And how do we ensure that our economies provide what we hope what we hope to see in democracies in terms of, for instance, equality of opportunity and the capacity to deliver a viable standard of living. Critical technology is clearly linked to the future of security in the Indo-Pacific, and as we heard in the previous discussion, it's intrinsically linked to the issue of geoeconomics. And that's what we're going to be discussing in the third and final episode of this special series on the future of the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape. The ANU National Security College and the National Security Podcast are thankful to those who gave their time and their thoughts for this episode. You heard, in order of appearance, 
Jennifer Jacket, the Sir Roland Wilson Scholar at the ANU National Security College, Dr. Claudia Vickers, leader of the Synthetic Biology Futures Science Platform at the CSIRO, Dr. Amy Parker from the Centre for Earth Observation at the CSIRO, Dr. Sue Kay, the CEO of the Queensland AI Hub and Robotics Australia, Dr. Atsushi Tsunami, President of the Sasakawa Peace Foundation, where he leads ocean policy research, and among many other roles, he is also a member for the policy group under the Committee on National Space Policy in the Japanese Cabinet Office. Dr. Michael O'Hanlon, Director of Research for Foreign Policy at Brookings, and Elsa Kania, Adjunct Senior Fellow for Technology and National Security at the Centre for a New American Security. I'm Chris Farnham, and I'll speak to you again on the third and final episode of this special series of the National Security Podcast. Well, that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed part two of this special podcast series. There's a link to part one in the show notes, just in case you missed it. And don't forget, all the analysis from the Indo-Pacific Futures Project is available on the Futures Hub website. There's a link in the show notes for this too. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.